Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show. I'm delighted to be here in the studio late at night, actually recording this late on a Friday evening for us here in Luxembourg. And I'm thrilled to have a colleague in the studio. And this time it's not Sasha, it's Sarah Tapp, who you might know from The Hangover, which is, of course, on Sunday morning. Sarah, great to have you in the studio. Thank you so much for be, uh, letting me be here. It's nice to be here at night. It's a bit unusual know, it's for me. It's very unusual. It's <laughs> quite quiet here, actually. Uh, but uh, we have the place almost to ourselves but the reason we're recording at night time or evening time for us here in Luxembourg is because we're joined by somebody I have wanted to talk to for so long ever since I saw the title Decision Engineer it's Michelle Florendo from San Francisco Bay Area hello Michelle hello and I am so delighted that we were able to make this tiny tiny work even though it's late over there it is morning over here. Yes, and uh, I'm sorry that we haven't got you on our feed here visually, but uh, we're hoping to do some magic um, after we record this. Now, just to give everybody a little bit of background to you, Michelle, I've been following Mm -hmm. your career for a few years now, and it's just amazing because I've needed somebody like you in my life for a while and I found you a little bit too late but never too late they say so you're a decision engineer and executive coach you are a Stanford trained decision engineer for type A professionals we'll get onto that later and your mission is to teach people how to make decisions with less stress more clarity and you're passionate about doing this to help professionals and normal people make decisions with intention from the big strategic macro decisions about what direction to take organization to the small consistent micro decisions that may govern over time how we show up as a person as a leader as a mother as a friend etc and over all of the years that you've worked on this you've led workshops across the globe showing hundreds of professionals and normal people how to use the principles of decision science to grow their impact and fulfillment and you continue to teach course on business decision making at Stanford continuing studies you helped mm-hmm. redesign the decision making curriculum in Stanford's absolutely extraordinary designing your life courses which I so want to look into and you're a faculty coach for the Berkeley Executive Coaching Institute and you host your own podcast called Ask a Decision Engineer. So Michelle it's just a real thrill to have you with us here today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to having this conversation ever since we first made contact. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So for those who might not know, I mean, it's in the title, but really a lot of people will not even be aware there's such a thing as a decision engineer. Tell us, tell Mm -hmm. us more. I mean, when I often introduce myself as a decision engineer, people do a double take because they never realized that that could be a thing. But it's true. There's an entire field called decision science that is dedicated to how is it that we make decisions? How is it that we can make better decisions? And what I had studied in my undergraduate studies at Stanford was finance and decision engineering. Haven't really done much with the finance thing. I was never really interested in that. But decision engineering and optimizing the decisions we make, that is what I found fascinating over my entire career. And then when it comes to making decisions, you know, I know you deal with type A's. So let's just pause there. (laughs) What's a type A? 
It's funny because this is something that some of my clients had pointed out. And so a lot of my clients tend to be people who are very ambitious. They uh, they might have a bit of perfectionism. They really want to make the best of what they have or make the best decisions. And there's a lot of focus on maximization and optimization, both in their work and in their everyday lives. And what I found is that sometimes, even though they need to make decisions all the time, there can be an even higher pressure that they feel to make the best decision when they have that type of mindset. Well, on that word, is there such a best thing as a best decision? Or isn't it the fact that you have to make the best decision at that moment in time with the information you have at that time? So, so it's interesting when when I talk to people about what they might find hard or stressful about decisions. They'll say, well, I want to make sure that I'm making the best decision, the right decision versus the wrong decision. But when I dig a little deeper and ask them, well, what does that mean? What is, What does a best decision look like? They'll say, well, it's, it's when everything turns out the way that I want it. But therein lies a, a little bit of a myth that many people have bought into, and that's that the quality of our decision, whether our decision is good or bad, is equal to whether the outcome is good or bad. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, the quality of our decisions and the quality of the outcome are actually separate and distinct things. That's and I don't think many people realize that. It's an interesting That's distinction, so isn't it? Oh, interesting. Do you think it's harder these days to make decisions compared to, I don't know, even a decade ago, before social media, let's say? Oh, goodness. I would say absolutely. Even when I think about the past 50 years and then the past 10 years, especially, the number of decisions that we have to make over the course of our lives or even in our daily lives has increased with the advance of the internet, the amount of information that we have access to has also increased. And then also the number of options we have has increased. And then with the rise of social media, the stakes feel even higher because we feel like we're making these even micro decisions about what are we going to wear? Where are we going to vacation in public? And so I think all of those different factors have created this perfect storm of just a lot needing to be processed, but people also not feeling equipped to be able to make those decisions with ease. And there you're dealing with, as you say, the Taipei's, the, the probably leaders mostly who are these perfectionist people who want to make the best decision, as you've just described. Now, I was brought up, I remember a physics teacher telling me the 80-20 rule a long time ago. <laughs> what do you think of the 80-20? I suppose for anybody who might not know the 80-20 rule, can you explain that to us? Yeah. So the 80-20 rule is that uh, 80 percent of the results that you may get is actually attributed to 20 percent of the effort. And so what that means is that you may not need to go to a hundred percent effort in order to get pretty good results. So the 80-20 rule is, okay, where can you focus your 20 percent of effort to get 80 percent of the outcome that you want? And I do think that there's something there when it comes to decision making, because the other thing is Sometimes we don't acknowledge the fact that we can't completely control the outcome. We want to, but in reality, we don't. And that 20% that we really can control is our process around decision making. We can make the best decision through the best process that we can have. 
or at least rigor of thinking to be able to move the needle about 80% and then the other 20% really might actually be out of our hands. And And I think that's important to acknowledge. Yeah. And this is where the word engineer comes in, because you mentioned the word process, engineering. So how do we engineer to make good decisions where we can't ultimately control the outcome? Yeah. Well, this is where I was really amazed to find that there are so many very simple fundamental principles from the field of decision science that most people don't know about. And so one of the things that I'll share is there's a framework of the three components of every decision. And I learned this from my professor, Ron Howard, when I was studying decision analysis at Stanford. But every single decision, big, small, personal, work, group or individual, always has three components. And that's one of the places you can start by simply identifying what are your objectives? These are the things that matter to you in the decision. What are your options? Those are the different paths you can choose among. And then what information do you have or not have with respect to how those options can deliver against your objectives? I'm 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 writing that down. <laughs> I mean, when you said three things, I thought you might mean head, heart and body, actually. I mean, oh, that's what I was that thinking. That's also... Uh, well, I also do talk a lot about head, heart and body in terms of where we can process and get data about these decisions we need to make. I I work with a lot of analytical people in the business world who are used to using their head a lot. But the other thing that I talk about in my work is how feelings, how we feel in our body, that gut instinct, or even our emotions can also hold valuable data that can better inform Somewhere my therapist's spider sense is tingling. I know know this. She would be nodding vigorously. (laughs) And I know this from personal experience. And this is where I I literally learned the hard way and the slow way. I wish I had known you before, because when I had the most important decision to make in my life, I I knew the life that I was running. And, you know, I, I think this is it's like the activation barrier. A lot of people know the life they're living, but they don't know the other life, if they make that big life choice, what the other life will look like. So they have to make a choice between the life and the line, the path they're on, or taking what is actually a very brave decision to choose the other Mm -hmm. life where they don't know the outcome. So that's a tricky one. But I remember when I had to make this decision, which took me far too long, um, I'm a very logical thinker, exactly what you're describing. But then finally, my stomach was giving me pains. And I realized eventually, oh, oh, listen to your gut instinct. That's a phrase for a reason. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's so interesting because at least in the space where I work, I do, I'm an executive coach. I work in the corporate space. There's a lot of talk around Oh, if I need to make, I want to make a good decision, it needs to be rational. Mm-hmm. Oh, I need to make a good decision. I need to check my emotions at the door. Yeah. And I actually think that's that's dangerous thinking because we're leaving a whole lot of data out of the picture there. Like yeah. in, in the example that you just mentioned, where you may be choosing between the current path that you're on that is known and a path that is unknown Yes, you can think to things rationally, but also there might be other interesting feelings that can point to other data there, right? Yes, there might be feelings of fear 
for example. But, you know, we it's only once we acknowledge what the feeling is that we can dig into, well, what is that pointing to? Is the fear simply because it's fear of the unknown, in which case that's a very natural thing. I mean, from a neuroscience perspective, our brains are hardwired to dislike uncertainty because evolution-wise, 10,000 years ago, if we didn't know whether this mushroom we were going to eat was poisonous or not, that was a life or death situation. But like now we can see, okay, is this fear just because of its unknown? Or is this fear of an actual risk of not being able to get something that we might want, mm-hmm. but or is it a fear of what others might think? And yeah. is that actually something that we want to factor into our decisions? But, you know, there can be lots of different data there yeah. if we just explore it. And actually on that point, I mean, my life is just one example, but I'm sure there are many people who have that the crossroads in their life where they think, do I, I mean, I'm thinking of entrepreneurs, for instance, do I stick to this career path or do I jump ship and I try something completely new or moving country? You know, there's a lot, I mean, most of our audience are expats and so they will mm-hmm. all have had to make that choice. And I, I want two questions here, really. One is, how do you go about making that choice? And then if you make that choice, does it get easier the next time and the next time? Mm. So two questions you posed. One, how do we make that choice? Yeah. And then once we make this choice, does it get easier? Correct. So I guess I'll I'll go to the oh, I'll scratch the surface on the how. Yes. First and I'll go <laughs> because all of the things that I teach, I teach whole courses on yeah. how do you make decisions. Give, give us a thirty second summary. <laughs> no, no, no. You, yes, you can have but, three minutes. <laughs> yeah. So um in terms of how Actually, I'll I'll offer um, a double click into one of those components. So I set the three components of every decision. What are your objectives? This is what do you prefer in the outcome? What are your options? And then what information do you have? Mm -hmm. I think a good first step is to clarify what are your objectives? What are these criteria that you're going to use to select the path forward? And often I realize it can be difficult to name. Like, what is it that that you care about. Uh, But I I developed this tool called the Attractive Concerning Table. So it's a twist on the pro-con list. Instead of pro-con, think of what is attractive about this option I'm considering. The Attractive Concerning Table? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but... I can see a lot of applications for that. <laughs> Excellent I name. Mean, I talk about attracted concerning because... Just to um, tell you, sorry, again, to, tapping into the feelings. sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to tell you while you're talking, I've got uh, Sarah making notes here opposite me. So it's all going down in her book. So carry on. We're no, on. I feel like I'm at school. I had to get I, a notebook and start I, I'm taking typing. notes. I'm typing. She's writing. Yeah. So here we are. We're at attractive concerning table. Let's go. Yes. Okay. So um, instead of doing a pro-con list, because I find that when you do pro-con, there's a lot of limitations. Like, But the first thing is, who decides what is a pro or a con? And so instead of doing that, set up attractive and concerning. You draw a line horizontally across the paper. Above the line is attractive. Below the line is concerning. And you start walking through options you're considering in the columns. And so let's say you're considering taking taking that offer in another country. Well, what is it that is making you lean in to that? What is attractive about that? What's exciting? And write those things down. Mm-hmm. On the on the flip side, what is concerning 
about that? What is making you pause? What is making it not a definite yes? And write those things down. And then move on to, well, what are the other options you're considering? Maybe there's another job offer here. Maybe it's to say, who knows what it might be. But each option gets a column you think through and write down. I think writing down is really important so you can see the data. What's attractive, what's concerning, and then you can start identifying themes mm-hmm. of what's actually really important and that's driving this decision. And I suppose that's sort of perhaps coming to a person's values in life, how they want to lead their mm-hmm. life. And perhaps the answer to my second question, I can almost answer myself in that if you can pinpoint what they are in one decision, perhaps, well, they might realign, you might change your values, but but often people have similar values through their life. Yeah, but I mean, it, at, by at least identifying and being able to articulate what are these things that are important to you in this decision? You have a compass, mm-hmm. right? You can start to tell directionally, okay, where, what might be really off track? Where am I in more congruence? You have a clear picture of what is more important to me, what might be less important to me. So, for example, sometimes this has come up where the the concern, the concern about what other people think. Uh-huh. Sometimes that might actually be important. The concern about what my spouse might think. Okay, yes, that that can be top of the list. That is going to be a criteria. But sometimes it has been, uh, I'm afraid of generally what people, what people, who people, are these people who matter? Is that necessarily an objective that is a priority? And if not, we can hone our focus on, okay, what is it that I'm actually trying to optimize here for? Because it's only then that we can really start evaluating, okay, to what degree does this option deliver? Yeah. When you're talking about all of this, I'm thinking of most people's education and how one makes a decision does not feature in most education, uh, unfortunately. I I had one friend who was in the army and he told me, I'll never forget this, he said, in the army you're taught to make fast decisions and realign, fast decision, realign. And that's how they have to operate. They have no other option. But um, I'm sure you've thought, I know you've got um, children, you've thought through how to teach young people how to make decisions. Mm. It's it's definitely something I'm living right now because my kids (laughs) are four and seven. I do appreciate that at my son's elementary school, one of their core values is make good decisions. So it's already created an opening into, okay, what does that mean? Uh, But I'll also give a plug for other organizations in the decision science space who are already doing that work. So there's the Alliance of Decision Education and the Decision Education Foundation who are dedicated to figuring out how do we develop curriculum around this for younger people in uh, like kindergarten through 12th grade, at least in the U.S. public system, Um, because it's such a foundational skill, right? Like we... We have to make decisions all the time, and yet it isn't something that is typically included. No. In, uh, I mean, I'm thinking of two major decisions that children may have to face in their lifetime. You know, if parents divorce, uh, they may have to think about where they want to stay. That's one terribly difficult decision that they have mm. to go. And usually that's made with a counsellor of some sort. But still, if a child had its own autonomy to try to make good decisions, that would be great. And then, of course, most children at the end towards the end of their education, they have to think, what do I do next? Mm-hmm. And right. I mean, some 
some poor students don't even have careers advice, not alone. How do I think about this? Have you got mm-hmm. any, given that we're around exam results time here in, in a lot of Europe, actually, have you any advice for maybe some young people who might be listening and thinking about their future or even any age people continue to think about their future you can try to figure out what you want to do at any age yeah yeah i'm sure you've come across them so how do you how do you do that well it's funny you mentioned that that critical age of young adults figuring out what's next because that's part of the reason why i was brought in to revise the decision-making curriculum for the Designing Your Life course. So for anyone who hasn't heard about that, at Stanford University, there's a couple of professors who had developed this Designing Your Life course, which was all about applying design thinking principles to life design, which is fantastic for thinking through options and better understanding what's important to people. Uh, But they were wanting more solid tools around how do I then actually make a decision. We're and both looking at each other. I mean, like, we're like, okay. I just so want to do that course. <laughs> I, I know that there's um, the digital uh, lab here in Luxembourg who have used part of that process to help build it here. But I so want to sign up to that. I so want to do it. <laughs> so, well, I, I'll, I'll also plug that they they have a book. They have multiple books out. They also have digital experiences. I mean, they've been great co-collaborators, so I definitely want to to talk about their work as well. Uh, but to answer your question, okay, how? How do I then make a decision? Uh, there's two different things that I would say. One is, okay, if you have to make a decision, I'm just going to to build off of what I talked about last time with the attractive concerning table. Let's say you do the attractive You've noticed the themes, you've come up with a list of your top three to five objectives. And okay, and what you want to do next, it might be, okay, I want the work to be interesting to me. It needs to be sustainable. Maybe there needs to be something around. It has to be a good fit for the skills that I currently have, meaning I can actually get the job without having to do more education. And maybe there's a particular geographic location you're looking at. Let's say those are the objectives. So then you set up a decision matrix. And also, you can take notes. I also have resources on the askadecisionengineer.com site. We're going to be linking to all of this. Don't worry. You've got but at least two students is- here. You've got two students. Very, we're, we're being yeah, we're a star. I would say at the moment in in, in you know our concentration we're, on what you're saying. We're ready to print out these handouts, like for sure. <laughs> well, again, I'm a big fan of getting things out on paper because it becomes easier to digest rather than thinking in circles all these considerations in your head. And so a decision matrix is an easy way to get all three of those components that I talked about, objectives, options, information, onto a single page. And so what that looks like is you create a a grid, and in each row, on the left-hand side, you write down one of your objectives. So if you have three objectives, you'll have three rows financial sustainability, interesting work in a particular location, maybe that's it. And then you'd lay out what are the options that you're considering in each of the columns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now once you've laid that out, so objectives down the left-hand side, options across the top, in each box, you are then going to just have some sort of indicator of 
to what degree does, let's say, option one fulfill the financial sustainability objective? Mm-hmm. And when I say a visual indicator, sometimes people will use colors, red, yellow, green. I like using bubbles. So if you could just create a circle and if it completely fulfills that objective, yes, I can check the box by natural sustainability. You color that circle completely. If it doesn't meet something at all, like, oh, no, it is not interesting at all. Maybe you leave that circle empty. And if it's halfway, you can fill it in halfway. But it's a way of just capturing what information do you have on how each of those options deliver against your objectives. And then you kind of get a snapshot of where things stand. As you're describing all of that, I'm imagining how useful that would have been. Um, (laughs) (laughs) However, um, I'm also thinking of one of the other major life decisions, which is, you know, if a person gets married, choosing a life partner. And that's one where we usually resonate more with emotions than with the logic of our minds. It's it's almost flipped to people who think mm-hmm. from their heads. So do you ever talk about that with people, whether, you know, yes. they're, they're thinking about a life partner? So let me put it down in boxes. Do you fulfill this and this and this? <laughs> I've, you know, I've heard a lot of a lot of different speakers talk about, including in a business context, talk about how choosing your life partner is the most important decision they've made for example, in business. Yeah. It's, it's quite a common thing to say, actually. I've, I've heard successful people say that yes. when they've had a partner who's been more at home. Yes. <laughs> Therefore, they're yes. successful. Mm. <laughs> and I haven't heard the other side of the conversation, unfortunately. I'd love to hear that. When it's been a great marriage, you often hear about it. And you <laughs> However, so coming back to you, Michelle, you, you, you nodded your head vigorously when I said people do ask you about this. Yes, um, it comes up more often than I would think, especially as an executive coach, but it may not necessarily be relationships. But the piece that I want to dial into is how you said there are sometimes decisions where it's going to be driven more or a lot more of the data you have maybe based on feeling Mm -hmm. than logic. Mm -hmm. And I'd say in those cases, it's still useful to write these things down Because again, I'm all about getting all three of those inputs, head, heart, and body, onto the page where we can see it. And so let's say that you you do attractive concerning or you do decision matrix or any of these frameworks that I talk about. You look on the page and you use that to check in with what you are feeling. Because there have been times where I've had someone do a decision matrix, they look at it and they're like, no, this... This thing says one thing, but that doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. Say, oh, this is really interesting. What does that mean for what is not captured here? Mm -hmm. So it becomes a good tool for for that jumping off point of continuing to explore and, again, articulate what is driving that feeling. Now, another thing... So someone might... Oh, go ahead. No, no. I mean, I, I not just when you're talking here and, and I know the type of person you deal with, the executives, a lot of people have to make decisions connected to time. <laughs> How do you bring in the time factor to this? Yeah. So I'm hearing you talk about the time thing and also name what may be unsaid here. People need to make t- make decisions in a timely manner without all the information. Yes. So they might need to make decisions quickly in the face of 
imperfect information. Yes. And I think that's where it's useful to recognize that decisions happen in sequence. And so, yes, at this point in time, you may not have all the information, but it's also useful to explore, are there other decisions that can be made in sequence? Sometimes there can, sometimes there can't. And so it's also useful to distinguish, uh, there's a big tech company where I do a lot of coaching and they talk about one-way doors and two-way doors. And sometimes there are going to be decisions that are complete one-way doors. Once we do it, we can't go back. This I is actually part of the reason why. Oh, yes. No, go I was ahead, just going ahead. to say, Sarah, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say where she works. I mean, her, her radio job is just a part of what she does. I think I am allowed to say where you work. You are. Amazon. <laughs> so I'm very familiar with what you're discussing, Michelle. She's nodding away <laughs> at you. So for those who don't work at Amazon or big tech companies, continue, continue, Michelle, the one-way and the two-way doors. It, Here we it go. is quite yeah. publicly known, I think, though we talk a lot about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah please okay. go on. I'd, I'd love to know your insights. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I mean, when it comes to decision-making, especially decision-making and this concept of speed, it's useful to know, is this decision a one-way door? Meaning once I go through it, there's no going back. These are the types of decisions that are irreversible or they're super expensive to reverse. Or, I mean, this is part of the reason why the field of decision analysis existed. A lot of consultants have entire consulting firms using all of those frameworks to go through, okay, where is this company going to allocate a billion dollars for R&D or drilling, like mm-hmm. in oil and gas or you know, the, the space agency here, like mm-hmm. NASA assessing risk? So there are some decisions definitely that are one-way doors. But there are also a lot of decisions that are actually two-way doors, meaning they are reversible. Maybe it's not going to be necessarily super easy or comfortable to reverse, but they are reversible, meaning there are decisions that can happen in sequence. I can make this decision now, and then once I have more information, there may be an opportunity to make a new decision. Yeah, they, they would be slightly easier. I'm, Yeah, I've got so much going on in my ha- mind at the moment. I'm thinking of the one where door decisions where you're dealing with those huge. And, and as you said, I mean, not only is a decision analysis a field, but I imagine it's it's highly combined with the field of risk assessment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you probably work with people who have to make these billion dollar decisions, I imagine. I I mean, as an executive coach, I do work with people who make billion dollar decisions, but I don't work as a decision consultant. I have many colleagues in the Society of Decision Professionals who do exactly that mm-hmm. and are consultants in the decision analysis field for companies. But I'm more I work with leaders. Yeah. Um, and then I also teach. Yeah, I, I just, yeah. And then I just wanted to kind of bring it back to to the younger mind, because, you know, Sarah, you have children, I have children, and um, I have seen, I don't want to pick up my daughter, but, you know, at younger people, sometimes they feel really bad and they say, oh, my God, but what if it's the wrong decision? You know, how do you deal with even a young mind or, or an adult mind if they are, you know, absolutely stuck because they feel what happens if I may? How do you deal with that? that, that they're anxiety. Literally, it is anxiety. Mm-hmm. It is anxiety. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I have seen a number of children feel like this. And I, co- I completely understand it because they don't, what, like you said, they don't want to get it wrong. So how mm-hmm. do you help that anxious mind? Yeah. You know, when I think about 
that anxiety, it makes me think of this fabulous quote from Dr. Luana Marquez, who is a, I believe, an associate professor of psychology or psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And she talks about how anxiety is the overestimation of threat mm-hmm. and the underestimation of our ability to manage it. Oh, I like that. Great quote. Yeah, that's terrific. Yeah. That's really great. And when I, I'll try to when remember I think that. About young people, <laughs> right? It's, it's less about, okay, how do you make the perfect decision every single time, more around how do we build resilience? Like one of the things yeah. I talk about is it's more important to be resilient than right. And decision making. And then to build resilience, I imagine, not being the expert like you, the more you make those baby step decisions, the better you become at building your decision making resilience. Right. Because again, decision making is a skill. It can be learned. It can be practiced over time. I think part of resilience is also recognizing when we have an opportunity to make a new decision, recognizing that Life does not ride on one decision. Actually, um, I think it's is it Albert Camus who said, life is the sum of all of our choices. Oh, yeah. Because that's really what it is. Yeah. Decide, 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 decide. As opposed to, uh, I talk about when I'm teaching, I use the image of an arrow. Sometimes we think that making a decision is like I, I'm pulling back. I need to aim perfectly so that I can hit the bullseye or else all is lost. But really, decision-making is more like steering a ship. Mm-hmm. Sure, let me set course, I'm going to steer, but then maybe the winds change and I'm blown off course. Okay, let me recalibrate, make new decisions, steer another direction. Oh, maybe I see there's some dolphins. I want to hang out with the dolphins. Let me stay here for a while. Yeah, and then you're also describing that situation, which I feel very much whenever I'm on stage or whatever, you, you feel the energy between you and the audience. And so like a decision, any decision you make is not just integral to you, it's also development with the outside surroundings and the environment that you then find yourself in, which you can't control. So do you ever try to help the people you're teaching or working with to think about the decision not just being inside themselves, but something that's absolutely an interaction with everything that they will go through in connection with time going forward? If I've, if that makes sense at all. <laughs> Does that make sense? I know what I'm hearing you talk about is decision making is it's kind of like a dance. And, it is a dance with know, time and a dance with the environment. Right. Yeah, and I think it's it, it makes me think about how sometimes you said something around uh, there's this desire to control, or at least there's greater comfort when we feel like we can control everything. And I yeah. think that's again because we are hardwired to uh, feel discomfort with uncertainty. Can but I the thing is, there's a difference. Oh, yes. Oh, sorry, yes. Michelle. I just wanted to jump in because, you know, Lisa was just asking about anxiety that people might feel before they make a decision. Do you also deal with regret that that happens after a decision is made or worry? <laughs> and I'd love to know what kind of, what are the circumstances that might lead someone to feel regretful or concerned about a decision after they've made it? And, and the other oh, side of yes. that is acceptance. <laughs> uh-huh. yes. How do you make okay. peace with your decisions? Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Big question. So, uh, let me talk about this this regret and acceptance thing. Because you asked, in what situations do people find themselves in their regret? And this is where 
this is why I always start with talking about the distinction between quality of decision and quality of outcome. Because often people feel regret when they made a certain decision and the outcome was bad. Mm-hmm. Because they feel like, oh, because the outcome was bad, I made a bad decision. That they're responsible that for it. Right, that yeah. they're responsible for it. But again, outcomes are a function both of our actions and the world around us. And so sometimes people are taking on more responsibility than than they really should have. Like, I remember I had a client who they were figuring out what they wanted to do next in life. Their His boys were graduating from uh, high school, and so he was going to be an empty nester. They had lived in the suburbs for years. He and his wife really missed city life. And so he was considering taking this job offer in New York so that they could go back to city life. They would sell their house in the suburbs, go back, have an apartment there. Life would be great. And so he made that decision in December of 2019. Oh, <laughs> bad luck. And you can imagine in New what York as well. Afterwards. Oh, yikes. Right? Yeah. And that's a classic example of it was a bad outcome, but it wasn't necessarily a bad decision. No, it was entirely Just unlucky. Yeah, that was entirely not his fault. I mean, that was a global, that was a really unfortunate time. It's very (laughs) unlucky. And so there's this piece, you mentioned the, the regret and acceptance. And so when we're making decisions, we need to be able to define what is a good decision at the point we are making it. Yeah. So regardless of outcome, how can I know that I am making a good decision so that I can move on at peace with this decision. Wow. Well, Michelle, I just, I'm going to just troll your website. <laughs> <laughs> and also the, the the designing your life courses, Stanford, and uh, try in my free time. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, decision, engineer my life to get more free time. <laughs> but hopefully you can stay with us because um, our next conversation is going to focus around Sarah's homeland. And for those on Today Radio who haven't yet listened to her Hangover Hawaiian special. Um, Sarah Tapp is, of course, from Hawaii. And I just want to uh, give a little bit of background to you, Sarah. You are the host of the Hangover on Today Radio every Sunday, 10 a.m. till noon. But you're originally from Kona on the island of Hawaii and went to high school in Lahaina on the island of Maui. And you have close friends, family, of course, affected by the fires that we've seen in the news recently. So that's why you're here. But linked to you, actually, just before we went uh, on air, Michelle, you said that, you know, you've spent many family vacations in Hawaii. You learned to dance and almost speak Hawaiian yourself, Michelle. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Hawaiian culture and even just the islands are very close to my heart. So I remember when I was reading the news, I was in tears. I was crying because Lahaina is such a significant place for Hawaiian people and history. A hundred percent. Yeah, me too. And I, you know, as a rule, I try not to cry at work. (laughs) Go ahead. um, You can cry on my show. (laughs) I had a couple of days where I probably just should have taken the day off because it, it was so unbelievable. It was like kind of a classic case of shock. And, you know, I say this as someone who is not originally from Lahaina. And thankfully, although we didn't find out for about a week, my family's safe 
everyone I know is safe. Their families are safe. And so you didn't find out your family was safe for a week. We couldn't get a hold of people. Um, so, you know, my parents are fine. Um, but I have one very good friend in Lahaina. And um, there was, there was, she's someone who responds immediately to things. And even knowing that, you know, cell service was down and all of these other things, um, it just seems so unlikely that we hadn't heard back yet from her because we were starting to hear from others. And it was finally, I think, on the Friday of that week that we woke up in the morning and I just had like about 50 different messages, you know, between WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger and all the different platforms and emails. All of a sudden, she and other people that we hadn't heard from had kind of like in a flurry all been able to reach us. So we... I mentioned that just because, you know, I'm here in Luxembourg safe and it was still a, like a horrible shock for me. So I can only really imagine how people who are actually there um, are feeling, even those who weren't directly impacted. The only thing I can imagine is that you might feel even more anxiety because you feel helpless here and they're in it together. Actually, in fact, this morning I was working with our colleague Sasha Q and this story came up because um, about decision making, in fact, whoever was responsible for pressing the siren button didn't press it in time, apparently. Yes. And this is the same siren for tsunamis and various other natural disasters. And I, I mean, I turn to you, Michelle, how on earth do you know? I mean, that's one of those one door decisions. When do you press that button? How do you go about making that choice? That that needs Can, can I jump in with please, some context? Because you know, the, the last thing I want to do, especially since you've given me the opportunity to come on, knowing that, you know, Hawaii is also in the stages of grief right now. And I'm seeing, you know, online, I'm not there in person to see it, but I'm seeing we're kind of entering like the anger phase and Maui County is suing Hawaiian Electric, for example, for not cutting the power and things like that. Like you're starting to see a lot of anger, which is totally understandable. One thing I heard that makes a lot of sense to me, but maybe not if you're not from the islands is kind of topographically the way the islands work is they're all volcanic. So, you know, you've got mountains in the middle and they gradually kind of go down to the coast. And in the Hawaiian language, we use the words mauka, which means mountainside, and makai, which means oceanside, in general, like when we're giving directions. I heard that the reason they did not immediately press this, the siren is that the siren is a tsunami war warning, classically. Oh, yes. And it means to head for the mountains. Uh -huh. But the fires were coming from the oh, mountains. That makes sense. So whether or not this was the right decision, whether it was justified, you know, it's obviously been a horrible disaster and people are rightly questioning it. That was the explanation given, I think, in one of the press conferences was they were they were afraid that people would run the opposite direction mm -hmm. or try to head up when they should be going down. Can you give us, now that you started with the, the geography, for those of us who haven't studied the topography, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> can you explain a little bit about the topography, the, the island nature and how much of this has been affected? How many people and kind of the land, what has been affected? For sure. I mean, I'm, you know, when people start talking about like the number of hectares burnt and like that, that's not super meaningful to me because I have no idea what they're talking about. But one thing that is really, really pertinent is 
this thing with kind of like every island, regardless of the shape, has mountains in the middle and it it kind of slopes down to a coast or to cliffs by the water. So on every island, based on sort of the wind and the rain and the climate, there is a windward side of the island where it's quite wet and rainy and cooler and a leeward side of the island where it's dry and very hot and dusty. And even uh, about a million years ago, when I was in high school in Lahaina, it would regularly get to like more than 90 degrees Fahrenheit in the daytime in, in Lahaina. It's a very hot, very dry part of the island on the leeward side of Maui. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of just how much area was affected, uh, Lahaina is kind of on the the sort of Maui's a weird shape, so it's hard to say directionally exactly where it is, but it's sort of shaped like the head and the torso of a person. Mm-hmm. Maui's kind of around, uh, Lahaina's kind of around like the nose, the nose area on the face. Yeah. And basically, the entire city of Lahaina, from sort of the most northern, northern point to the most southern point, up almost to the very top of it, where it hits the foot of the mountains, has completely burned to the ground with, with a couple of really interesting and rare and unexplained exceptions like there's a church that is complete left completely standing in the middle and you know it's easy to get very um religious about that but i think it's also potentially that they have a really good sprinkler system and the ground was very wet or just something you you know like the answer hasn't come out yet but basically at least in lahaina almost the entire city is completely gone and in other, there are two other parts of Maui that were affected. Um, Kula in an area that we call upcountry on the slope of ha- Haleakala. And uh, the fires from there have kind of come down and gone into another very built up area called Kihei. Thankfully, um, the damage was a lot less there in terms of structures. I think I saw just looking for like the very latest information, but... I think I saw so far, as of today, uh, the death toll is currently 115. There are 388 people that they've confirmed are still missing and more than 700 additional that they're trying to sort of deduplicate and confirm that they know people's names. And I believe upwards of 2,700 structures, 86% of which are residential. And uh, Lisa, we talked about this a little bit in advance, but... Because of the huge housing crisis in Hawaii, very similar issue to Luxembourg, um, a lot of those residential properties are multifamily homes. So, you know, when you hear that 2,000 plus homes have burned down, it's probably two to three times that number of families that have been displaced. So it's it's a really big problem because there's there's nowhere in the short to medium term to rehome them. And how are they being helped right now? Um, there are There are a lot of different things going on. I think fundamentally, there are some folks that are still in shelters, and that's been helpful for residents as well as people who happen to be in, you know, in Maui on vacation when it happened. Um, But what I see, like kind of in my own social feeds and through friends, is most people are staying with friends and relatives. And, uh, you know, for better or for worse, Hawaii is is also kind of a small place. Well, I was going to ask you, when you're giving us those figures of the, the displaced or unfortunately the people who have perished, what is the population? Give us a, a figure, you know, just roughly, you know, is it comparable to Luxembourg in size? Is it, I mean, I know and there's different islands. So how many of the islands are inhabited even? 
Good question. So there are four main islands in Hawaii. So the big island, which is called Hawaii, where I'm from, Maui, where the fires have have occurred. They're they're also on the big island, unfortunately. Uh, Oahu and Kauai. Right now, well, technically, as of 2021, Hawaii has a little over 1.4 million people. It's bigger than people think. You know, it's more Mm -hmm. than twice the size of Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. Lahaina itself has 13,000 in terms of permanent residents, but probably, I'm just wildly guessing here, at least that many visitors at any given time. Yeah. Yeah. And tell us, because Michelle alluded to the fact that it has some very historic structures there. So give us a flavor of what it was like before it was raised to the ground. It's so, you know, it's so hard to describe and I don't want to kind of overstate the case. But um, as Michelle mentioned, you know, it's historically very important. It was the capital of Hawaii when Hawaii was an independent kingdom before colonization. And um, it was a major whaling port. And um, it's, it's really hard to explain kind of what was lost. It's not just, you know, that there was a fire, but it's that literally almost everything burned completely to the ground. So every type of, you know, historical museum structure, library, schools, an elementary school, right, and the waterfront, like, just completely gone. Um, One of the kind of most famous parts of Lahaina is called Front Street. It's right along the water in the main part of town. It's very touristy, but it's also where most local people, you know, including me when I was in high school and all of my friends, it's like where people work as well. So, um, you know, not to just be, I know it's a really tough subject and I feel like I'm being very doom and gloom, but in addition to losing their houses, their pets, some, you know, in some cases, their loved ones, uh, folks have lost their income mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future. And, and education. Exactly. Well, thankfully, on the education front, um, I, I don't know truly what's happened uh, in Lahaina Luna, which is the high school at the very northern part of the, the kind of up by the mountains, the Mauka part of town. As far as I know, it wasn't affected, which is very, very lucky. But um, I did hear today that all of the students from Lahaina who've been displaced have been re-enrolled at schools wherever they are staying now. So the the government, I guess, has tried to make it very easy. If you are in another part of Maui, if you're on a different island, they have come up with a way to just get people back in school. And I'm seeing, including among some of my friends, some really great grassroots efforts to like provide backpacks full of school supplies for different ages and for boys and for girls. And it's, you know, it's it's really tough, but it's also um, the fact that the communities come together to support each other has been for me like the best part of it. Mm-hmm. I can see that in your eyes. And I know that there are links to a number of organisations and friends uh, that I will link to so that people can continue to support, of course. Um, and as you're explaining all of this, has this happened before to this extent? Not that I'm aware of, you know, there, since I've been out of Hawaii, which is quite a long time now, um, the climate change, you know, let's just be clear, is a real thing. It's year on year for a couple of decades now, Hawaii has been getting hotter and drier. And as a result, the number of brush fires and fire warnings and evacuation warnings has increased. And I think there's a little bit of weariness with it, you know, not exactly boy who cried wolf but people have gotten evacuation warnings maybe three or four times a year and maybe are a little bit desensitized to it Uh, they won't be now unfortunately but um yeah it's 
There have been a number of brush fires in large areas of the Big Island, also in Maui for quite a long time, um, but nothing on this scale. And I just saw today, unfortunately, every time the news refreshes, there's like a new awful milestone that's been achieved, but it's like the the most, the, the deadliest fire in the U.S. in more than 100 years now. Wow, yeah. Oh, it's amazing because it, well, just this morning I was talking to Sasha and we were talking about the, the European wildfires, so it's certainly a thing. And Every I, country, except yeah. Luxembourg, has had fires this year. Every country in the EU. Well, probably not Ireland, I imagine. Well, you know, <laughs> I saw an maybe, infographic maybe there was, that sorry. every country <laughs> except Luxembourg and that the, the area of Greece that just right now yeah. is burning is like about two thirds the size of Luxembourg. Wow. Uh, you know, it's spread out in different places, but yeah. it's a bit and terrifying. It's, it's tragic as well. And there's been um, some migrant people, young people who have perished because Awful. of this. It's, it's, it's terrible. But, you know, the next thing I'm thinking is what can be done about this? What can be done? What triggers it even? Do we know what triggers the wildfires? We don't. And like, I, you know, I don't want to speculate. I did see in the news that, um, and this is the reason Maui County is suing Hawaii Electric, um, that, you know, some of the um, basically electrical lines that were cut loose by these hurricane force winds came down and sparked on the very dry grass. Um, so, you know, I'm not any kind of specialist, but um, certainly the fact that the, the fire risk was determined to be low is kind of one of the key points, according to CNN, that's being questioned now. Like, how in the world did we think that the fire risk was low, given that, you know, wildfires have been happening over the course of the past few years really mm-hmm. consistently? My goodness. Well, I'm, I'm so sorry. I want to end on something positive, yes, which is the fact that you have brought your wonderful Hawaiian knowledge and music to Today Radio, to <laughs> RTL Today. And I will link to that. It's a tribute to Maui and all of those impacted by the fires. You talk about your homeland. Is there any, tell us, tell us a little bit about the Hawaiian culture. Tell us some good parts of Hawaii. Oh, for sure. Well, I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the best things um, that's come out of it for me is like the, the community taking care of itself. And um We've seen it, um, I mean, literally across the board. But just to give you an example, a guy that I went to high school with, um, you know, he's married now, has two kids, lives on the other side of the island, and he uh, runs charters. So he has a fleet of boats, small boats, and, you know, runs charter snorkeling cruises and things like that. And they've collected supplies and, um, you know, accepted donations for gas money and things like that. And they've, they've literally taken their boats around the island because there's no way to get there right now. Um, Another thing that we're seeing a ton of is a lot of individual fundraisers and GoFundMes um, where people are opening them for, you know, other people or older relatives who might not know how. And um, I have to say that the amount of money that's being donated and the amount of help that Maui is getting is Uh, really heartwarming and also makes me feel slightly guilty. Not that people don't absolutely deserve it, but, you know, there's this issue of when there's a crisis, which places get help and which Mm. people get help. And, you know, there's a, excuse me, there's a picture of Oprah Winfrey, who apparently has a house in Maui, and I didn't know this, but, you know, down at Maui I knew it because I listened to her. I saw the pictures, and I also listened to one of her podcasts where she talks about, often they're done from Hawaii, these, so I I listened to her Super Soul podcasts, and they're often taking (laughs) place in Hawaii. I love that. (laughs) I mean, I will say, though, people helping each other has been the best thing, and I did want to give a shout out. I didn't get a chance to do this on my own show, but 
Um, my stepdad and my stepbrother are professional musicians. That Hawaiian, they play a traditional style of Hawaiian music called kiho alu or slack key guitar. And they, for example, you know, they weren't affected, but they, with some of their team, opened a GoFundMe to help all of the families who helped them run this weekly Hawaiian music showcase. They've raised over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I think it's incredible, and it's it's not them, you know. It's the generosity of all the people donating. Um, but I'm just I'm seeing that across the board that, you know, there's kind of calls for action on social. Like if anyone is not, you know, has opened a GoFundMe and it, and is not getting donations, let us know so we can amplify it. And that's been really um, beautiful and heartwarming to see. And it's it is a really big principle in Hawaiian culture to take care of each other. Well, island mentality, one has to. You only have each other at the end of the day, and that yeah. that is your family. I mean, in fact, that's the expat story, really, for us here in Luxembourg as well. True. And it's the ethos behind Today Radio and RTL Today that we only have each other here, and we try to communicate within ourselves and also to the rest of the world out there, <laughs> wherever is listening. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for coming in after a long week. Uh, congratulations on your own promotion. <laughs> thank you. Well, and Lisa, thank you so much for you know for giving me the opportunity and often like honestly all the guests you have I always learn so much but also just for you know donating your platform to the cause I really appreciate it I can't do anything more than that but at least we can raise awareness and and send on those links to your wonderful friends family and the larger organizations as well and I know Michelle had to drop off but uh, I am definitely going to be looking at her work 100% (laughs) I have already been looking at it of course Uh, but I'm going to diligently do so and uh, yeah and I hope you stick with it if you have any thoughts any words of advice any, you know, messages you want to send on to Hawaiian friends or to Sarah and her friends and family, of course, you can get in touch with us all the usual social media ways. Uh, we're, we're available in all sorts of things. We're everywhere. We're everywhere. Right? We're everywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you all so much for being part of the show today. And thank you, as always, for listening. The Lisa Burke Show. 